1: Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn
2: more at Xfinity.com slash XFi.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline and I'm Kristen, and we are not going to spend the whole show talking about my babysitting experience. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I know that the notes that I sent you are literally just stories about my life, Kristen. It's just copies of your childhood diary. Your yeah, diary. Um, I had this great babysitter growing up. She was the uh, she was my neighbor actually, and I just. Totally admired her. I thought she was so pretty and so mature, and I just like worshiped her. Um, but she stopped babysitting for us after one particular incident. What did you do? So um, <laughs> she came over, and as entertainment, we were painting, right? Well, so at one point, being silly, she dipped her hand in the green paint. I remember it as if it were yesterday. Dipped her hand in the green paint and started chasing me around the house with this wet paint hand. And I was, like, terrified. I was seriously terrified because I was like, oh, my God, you're going to get it on my clothes. It's so messy. Mom is going to be so upset that you've got paint in the living room. And so I, like, ran screaming away from her. And she's like, ha, ha, come back. I was so like scared and traumatized that I spent the rest of the night that my parents were out literally sitting in front of the front door, like the dog who's waiting for the owner to return, just like staring out the window, like, are they back yet? Are they back yet? After that, she never babysat for us again.
4: As you were telling that story, Caroline, I was uh, mentally cataloging all of the babysitters that I had and one of the ones who stands out the most to me was the babysitter who brought over a flying squirrel with her what yeah and I distinctly remember um, being a little bit afraid of her pet flying squirrel and also um, watching her like nervously trying to extract this like terrified flying squirrel from our living room curtains. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think it went as she had planned. Yeah.
3: Um, Well, but you're the youngest of five. Did your siblings never babysit you?
4: Yeah, I think they did. I mean, we got to that age where, I mean, there were so many of us, you know. (laughs) Safety um, and numbers. Yeah, uh, our parents could leave us alone. But I remember having a number of babysitters. And we had a couple who, I mean, they were like family members Mm -hmm. and they would come over. Um, Although I do remember. One, whose name was also Kristen, and I thought that was so cool. And she had, like, just just always wore, like, really cool, you know, like, early 90s clothes. Like Clarissa. Good, like, earrings and stuff. (laughs) Um, And she came over one time, and she brought McDonald's with her as her dinner. And I so distinctly remember sitting on the floor of the den while we were watching television, and she was eating her McDonald's, and I was just staring at it. I'd already had dinner. And she looks at me, and she goes you know, it's rude to stare at other people's food. Oh, and I was so hurt. I was like, just I, can't you tell? I'm like seven and I just want to fry. please. Aww.
3: <laughs> so both of us, both of these stories end in us sitting in front of other people <laughs> like dogs. Yes, but
4: babysitting was also an aspirational job for me as the youngest of five kids, because that's the thing. It was a very appealing prospect to have full reign over other children. I was the
3: opposite. I did not. Well, because also as a child, I was not a joiner. I never was a Girl Scout. I never took ballet or horseback riding or any of that. Um, camp was horrible because of that time that that one girl tried to strangle me, Morgan. And so babysitting was another one of those, like, typical, stereotypical girl activities. It was almost a rite of passage that I opted out of. I think I babysat for people three times, two families, and I just was not interested. I was like, I don't want this power. I don't like kids. I don't want to be around kids. There are like 50 million things, mostly reading a book, that I would rather be doing than taking care of children. Oh, I was all about it because I saw it as my opportunity As, like, a
4: 12-year-old to eat some free food. Sweet. Because usually they'd have good snacks. My mom was, like, super healthy. We never had exciting snacks. (laughs) So you get the cool snacks. Usually the parents would buy you pizza. I could make some cash. And, again... (laughs) boss a kid around. <laughs> so it was ideal. And it and it fit into this image I had in my mind of what like a cool thirteen year old, like teenager would look like and uh she had like pink glasses and braces and she was a babysitter and that's like who I really wanted to be. Um, now that I am half blind, I don't know <laughs> I don't care for that so much. But also, too, it's from the influence of my older
3: sister who was obsessed with the Babysitter's Club. You know, I never read them. I think I just heard gasps from the audience, but like, I never read the Babysitter's Club. Oh, as soon as I could. I remember it was, it was kind of a, a rite of passage for me mm-hmm.
4: to be allowed to read the Babysitter's Club, not because there was anything scandalous in it at all, but it was like one of those things, like getting my ears pierced, yeah. where it was like, once you are of age,
3: you can you can read the story. Well, so you read the Babysitters Club and became a babysitter. I read the Boxcar Children and then became a hobo. I read the Boxcar Children
4: too, and also tried to play orphan in the backyard so many times. <laughs> um, but just a quick note: in the process of researching for this episode, which is not going to be about the Babysitters Club, <laughs> sorry, unfortunately, sorry. But that series has sold 176 million copies. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and there are like a bajillion books written by just two people. There are a bajillion books. Um, Specifically. And, and this will relate to our conversation, though, about sort of the sociology and gender of babysitting, because it was launched during a time when babysitting had fallen out of popularity with young girls. And the Babysitter's Club, in a way, was kind of like propaganda to get more girls into babysitting. And listen, it totally worked. <laughs> on yours truly.
3: Well, I mean, thank God it came along, because as we're going to get into here in just a second, like, the image of babysitters in pop culture was horrifying. It still kind of is. It gets gross real fast. Yeah, not least of all because of the connection with porn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you Google... Don't Google this. Don't Google it. Don't, Don't Google it. But I was looking for... An article uh, talking about whether it was a news item or just like maybe a think piece on cultural fears about dads and babysitters, like whether it's dads preying on babysitters or girls, whatever, all of that stuff. But when you Google dad babysitter, you just get nothing but porn. And I mean, a lot of it. And I didn't click on any link because Hello. Uh, that's disturbing, and also I'm on my work computer. But um, there, it just reflects this, like, super deeply ingrained cultural ick factor that people have around teen girls and babysitting. Yeah, I mean, it's just the sexualization of teen girls and the whole, like, quote-unquote, like, virgin
4: factor. There's all sorts of stuff wrapped up in it. But we also see this reflected... In a different sort of way in our celebrity tabloid culture, because, I mean, how many stories do we have to hear about the nanny, like entrapping the celebrity husband? I mean, Mm -hmm. most recently there was Gwen Stefani and Gavin Rossdale divorcing allegedly because he had an extensive affair with their nanny. Ditto with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. Ditto with Jude Law. Oh, yeah. Ditto with the Terminator, a.k.a. Schwarzenegger. But, I mean, there were literally just so many. But we should note, too, that the whole nanny thing and governess is distinct from adolescent babysitter that
3: we're going to focus on in this podcast. Yeah, because that is a separate issue. We're, We're definitely talking about the sexualization and sort of uncomfortableness that people have with Teenage girls, and this basically stretches back to when we first got the teenager. I mean, and that, and that sounds silly like, what do you mean? When we first got teenagers, there have always been teenagers. No. no, no, the teenager, as we think of her, really was an invention of the early 20th century, that culture.
4: Yeah, it, it really emerged after World War I, where you have this sort of distinct phase of life and culture building up around that. You have uh, the automobile, which automobile. Take, the automobile, which whisks kids out of the home and also gives them a place to make out away from their parents, watchful eye and very quickly. With the emergence of the teenager, we get a lot of
3: a lot of concerns about those teenage girls. Yeah. So the literature around babysitters basically is parallel to stories of how important they are. They are critical to people being able to work and go out and enjoy their lives. Um, but what their importance means for our families and societies And then the fears over their behavior. There's a lot of anxiety wrapped up in, well, why do you need a babysitter? Can you not provide for your family? Can you not take care of your family? Oh, oh, it means that the woman is working. How how dare you have a woman working outside of the home? And before we get too far into it, I want to give a shout out to the source for the bulk of this material of what we're talking about today. And that's author Miriam Foreman Brunel, who I feel like we just should have called her up and had her on because the thing is, I was reading, uh, her book about babysitting in America, and as I went to find additional information to pull to, to supplement the stuff that we're talking about, I was, I was reading this source, and I was like, okay, well, you know, let me get, who's the author of this, let me appropriately cite it. Oh, it's, it's, Miriam Foreman Brunel again, and then I went to a third source and was reading and reading and reading again, Miriam Foreman Brunel. She's like the queen of academic literature about babysitters. Well, and just more
4: broadly too, girlhood culture in America. Mm -hmm. And as she notes, there's been so little scholarship on babysitters in particular, even though (laughs) They do play such a central role in our nation's economy and also in our home lives. And again, our perceptions of teen
3: girls in particular, although we're going to talk about boys, too. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, we've always had children watching children in this country. I mean, it's not like children were just either abandoned or with mom. There was no in between. (laughs) I mean, whether it was Puritan girls helping their mothers in colonial times or immigrant children called little mothers during the progressive era, you've always had older siblings who were expected to help out and take care of the kids. And in the South, before the Civil War, you had slave children who were expected to watch the children of white families. And sometimes, too, you would have the white slave owner's
4: wife watching over the slave children. Strange, like, un, not good relationships there.
3: Lots of dynamics at play. Uh, when we get into the Victorian era, you've got young women working as governesses. And again, like Kristen said, we're not going to go into that, per se. But trust me, there was also plenty of sex and class-related fears around governesses, too. And during the progressive era, you've got these young preteen, uh, girls called baby tenders who would help well-off mothers by pushing strollers. And they were eventually, though, phased out when these notions of childhood being precious caught on. Like, oh, suddenly I guess I can't employ this, this, you know, 11-year-old to push my stroller around. A baby tender.
4: A, that just makes me think about chicken tenders. Yes. And B, I would like a baby tender Just for like my um, like my work bag, like my 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 laptop and all of my (laughs) other. My other things. Well, we have colleagues with children, so. There we go. Yeah. I have a lot of nieces and nephews. I wonder
3: I wonder if our producer, Noel, like if his daughter needs anything to do, she can come in and be our baby tender. Put up a Craigslist ad for a baby tender. Yeah. That won't get flagged.
4: <laughs> um, during the progressive era, though, there were new laws enacted that prevented girls from working in what they called street trades, like selling newspapers or shining shoes and obviously prostitution. Um but few older girls also received allowances from their parents. So babysitting becomes something that in uh, these, in a number of states where these laws were passed that was legal, A, for them to do, but also a way for them to earn money. And also, hence, why delivering newspapers became something that boys would do. The newspaper boy
3: yeah, and the babysitter girl. Yeah, you've got to have all those laws protecting girls, even though it prevents them from doing cool things and making money. Watch out for the street trades. Well, uh, so as society is changing, we get the development of the babysitter and the teen girl at the same time. And Foreman Brunel writes that, What adults enduring anxieties about babysitters reveal is unease about the far reaching gender and generational changes that give rise to the modern American teen girl whose emergence coincided with the creation of the babysitter in the 1920s. So she talks about how starting around this point, you've got this highly charged position of a youthful stranger in your home overseeing your children and how she became a lightning rod for our anxiety. Yeah, I mean, pretty much ever since the babysitter was invented
4: in the 1920s, although at that time we weren't yet calling them babysitters, we immediately began throwing shade at these teen girls. For instance, one 1920s parenting guide urged moms not to hire high school girls who trundled, quote, babies about to hockey games, basketball practice, And engaged in street corner flirtation, Um, and they were also concerned about teens who had quote unquote modern behaviors, i.e., interests in clothes, boys, and sports. This is like happening for the first time outside of the home. So there's just like all sorts of anxiety. I mean, watch out for your child. Don't you know? Make sure no one takes it to a hockey game. Come on, just
3: put the kid in a backpack. Yeah, zip it up. Put some maybe put some snacks in there. Like, actually, that sounds really great. If anybody wants to put me in a backpack with snacks and carry me around, but, I think you need a, a Caroline tender. Yes, I do. There again, you know. Noel's daughter. Um, but babysitting was uh, was a compromise because with this emerging teen culture, you have all of these girls with this desire for freedom and an expectation of freedom. But you have adults' expectations that girls not only stay close to home, but that they stay in more feminine pursuits. You're not to sell newspapers on the street corners. So babysitting was a compromise in that you get to earn money and be somewhat independent, but you're still doing something maternal like taking care of children.
4: Yeah, and and it's worth remembering, too, that this is right after women had finally won the right to vote in 1920 and were working more than ever before. I mean, things were kind of topsy-turvy in terms of gender roles. This is the era of the new woman uh, transitioning into the flapper era, too, where the ladies were just like, I don't give a hoot, skadoo." <laughs>
3: <laughs> but it's funny how things work, and it's funny how our culture works, because as more women are leaving the home... Not that they were locked up, but, you know, kind of they were socially Um, more and more. You have this idea of traditional motherhood being emphasized by everybody from experts who were writing books to this new, strong and high powered advertising industry who were painting, literally painting pictures of mothers with their children saying, this is the kind of parent you have to be.
4: Well, and that also points to the class issues tied up in all of this as well, because it seems like the invention and necessity of a babysitter is a product of like higher socioeconomic statuses because there were always working class women who had to leave the home and had mm-hmm. to have like probably their kids watching after their kids in unpaid circumstances. You certainly had that existing for women of color from the get-go. Um, so that's also something to keep in the back of your mind of how how very white and middle-upper-class all this is.
3: Yeah, and you were sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, because while hiring a babysitter was a necessity if you were going to, as a parent, leave the house, whether it was for work or just to go to a movie, you were also criticized by parenting experts who were saying, oh, well, you're leaving your children with this flippant teenage girl. So not surprisingly, once we get to
4: the 30s, and the term babysitter is coined, you start to see more formal babysitting training. I do remember that in uh, my babysitting days, Caroline, having to take that CPR course. (laughs) But back to the 30s, in an effort to make sure that these unbridled girls would adhere to
3: standards acceptable to grown-ups rather than their friends at hockey games. Yeah. So instead of encouraging young girls to put babies in backpacks and go flirt on street corners, having them go to these training classes was a way to standardize this quote unquote profession. And it was a way to ensure that these girls were still feminine despite this independence. And similarly in the 1950s, I know we're jumping forward, but you see babysitting training starting to get stuck into home ec courses, which does closely maintain its alignment with that traditional caregiving femininity. But you know who was
4: also in quite high demand for babysitting back in the 30s, 40s, 50s were boys. Yeah, There's like so much like, squick factor these days of, like, oh, a male babysitter. I mean, it's, like, a whole, like, side joke on Modern Family and, like, other, like, so many other sitcoms um, of, oh, a, a teen boy watching children. Something must be off. But teen boys were considered excellent babysitters, <laughs> basically because um they were considered more level-headed than wild girls, and also they could model masculinity to the boys, they might be babysitting because dad was out of the home. So there were concerns that like, oh, you know, our little, little Johnny's going to get too soft. So bring in the male babysitter who can teach him how to be a man.
3: Well, that was definitely a way. I mean, that was how a lot of people felt, but that was also a way that parenting and child care experts tried to sell male babysitters to people because there's this weird push and pull around having male babysitters. Like, Yes, they were in high demand because they were considered more in control of themselves than those, like, flippant, crazy flapper girls. Um, but mothers at this time, even then, had a degree of discomfort around, like, oh, well, this isn't like a feminine pursuit. He's, uh, you know, he's a boy. What does he want to do watching children? And so experts sort of backed these boys up saying like, no, 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 um, they're capable of having this gentle determination, which is what one of the manuals said in order to be like, oh, he's not too masculine. But don't worry, he's not too feminine either, um, because the thing is, by the late 1930s, teen boys had established informal child care networks and you had vocational training programs targeting them to turn them into their own standardized army of sitters. Caroline, this means that boys were the original babysitter's club.
4: And that was the sound of my mind exploding. <laughs> <laughs> my mind and my childhood exploding. Um, but I love all of these anecdotes that Miriam Foreman Brunel weaves in of... These college guys at the time who were also super into babysitting. I don't have the exact name in front of me, but she mentions this one group of guys at Princeton who form their own, their own babysitters club. I'm realizing that all of these are just like babysitters <laughs> clubs. Um, and they called it something like tiny tot time or something like that. A lot of like tea alliteration. And it was, I think specifically for Princeton's faculty's kids. To to go to. But then there was also over at Harvard athletes, college athletes, um, and specifically football players who would babysit as kind of part of the athletic program. There was one football coach who was like, I'm as proud of these boys and their babysitting skills as I am of their football skills.
3: Yeah, their uh, their motto was, When parents step out, a Harvard athlete steps in. Oh my gosh, why has no one made that into a movie?
4: <laughs> um, but by the mid-50s, apparently a quarter of teen boys worked as Babysitters. And again, they were especially popular among, you know, moms and parents who were just like a little nervous
3: about teen girls and their, and their crushes. And you mentioned that by the mid fifties, there were about a quarter of teen boys who worked as sitters. But around this time, nearly half of teen girls were working as sitters. And when you get into World War II, a lot of those girls believed that by watching children, They were helping the war effort because they were allowing more moms to work and leave the home, which meant that, hey, the more you help moms work and you help the war effort, the sooner that men can come home and this war will be over. But... Despite the fact that they might have felt like they had this greater calling during the war, it still wasn't always a great deal. You were expected to help out with the housework. You wouldn't always make appropriate wages, according to these young girls. And you might have to watch five or 20 kids at the same time and work late. Just wait for these parents to come home from their shifts. And so you start to see the origins of girls being like, hey, wait a second. We need to uh, we need to come together and figure out how to improve babysitting conditions. Really interesting stuff. Little
4: girls unionizing. That's true. All right. Well, we're gonna get into that when we come right back from a quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable.
4: We're picking up our babysitting timeline after World War II. And before we dig into all of the the anxiety, the growing angst around teen girls and also the expansion, though, at the same time of the babysitting sector, I would like to note, Caroline, um, one of the most surprising babysitters we ran across in our research,
3: one Sylvia Plath. Oh, God, I know I so badly want. A Daria esque cartoon featuring Sylvia Plath as a babysitter. So in 1951, she writes a,
4: a column for Christian Science Monitor called As a Babysitter Sees It. And this was all based on her experience as a live in nanny for a wealthy family. And if her Sylvia Plath talking about babysitting sounds familiar, she would later write a poem called The Babysitters based off of this summer babysitting as well. But listen, Sylvia Plath was one of those girls who was like, um, there is so much hidden labor in this job. This is not okay. So she, in her column as a babysitter, sees it. Plath emphasizes the importance of parents outlining the precise job description. Otherwise, you will end up washing those dishes, baking, and ironing. In other words, Plath was not a fan of babysitting.
3: Well, no. I mean, also keep in mind the cultural shift. And I mean, this is massively condensing things and glossing over a bunch of stuff. But you once had live-in help. Families had a maid or a butler or a cook, someone in the home helping out or or a live-in nanny. But when you move into the depression and afterward, suddenly we're moving away from live-and-help being as common. So you have to hire babysitters. You have to hire this outside help. And a lot of times what came along with that was the expectation that the girl or the boy would be washing your dishes. <laughs> yeah. And pop culture was
4: aware of babysitting very much. By 1948, the Saturday Evening Post declared it a key industry.
3: Yeah, again, you see a lot of push and pull between the need for babysitters and the fear of them. So after the war, obviously, we get the baby boom. So you have more children. But in terms of population, relatively fewer tweens because there had been that drop off in births during the Depression. You also have the factor of families moving away from all those aunts and grannies in urban centers to get a house in the suburbs. So suddenly you're away from all of your childcare. Not only have you left behind a culture of having live-in help, but you've also left behind any potential family help, too. Again, though, with the culture of live-in help, that is exclusive right. to middle and upper
4: class people, right?
3: Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but so balanced against that need to support your family by getting a babysitter You've also got fears that they're somehow going to destroy families or that they indicate that somehow parents can't do it all themselves. Um, you've also got fears, a lot of fears, that teen girls are exploiting a paternal obligation to financially provide for the family and pay for the sitter. So there's this anger over Young girls, like, conning men out of their hard-earned money and commercializing maternal virtue. But in reality, most of these sitters weren't even earning enough to go on, like, a spending spree or go see all the movies one Saturday. But rather you had a culture of a lot of girls saving their money up to get special clothes or to eventually one day get a car or go to school. They gotta get that cashmere sweater set, Caroline. Oh god. But,
4: you know. (laughs) But they were making between 35 cents and 55 cents an hour, which translates, I know, I know, I know, inflation. But even with inflation that only translates to uh believe, between like $3 and 450 an hour. So, yeah, they were not raking in the dough. Um, but I think that like adults were completely taking advantage of them and it also speaks to how we totally marginalize domestic work mm-hmm. and childcare. Yeah, And in 1948, the same year that Saturday Evening Post is all like, oh, babysitting, such a big industry, you also have the film Sitting Pretty come out, and it's about a Bobby Soxer babysitter who throws parties at the house where she's babysitting, and she gets fresh with the father. And this crystallizes what's all happening in the background of this masculinity crisis going on, again, playing on those anxieties around teen girls. There are so many
3: layers to this. Right, because as Foreman Brunel points out, who's writing the TV shows, film scripts? and novels that we're reading at this time. Who wrote Sitting Pretty? It's dudes, not to give too much of a spoiler. Um, But it's, you know, they are fueling these weird pop-cultural-based fears about teen girls and teen babysitters. And why? Why is that? And she talks about how there is this masculinity crisis that arose out of the Depression and World War II. It's this convergence of changing ideals about womanhood and, adolescence. and so Foreman Brunel goes into pretty great detail about the sort of cynical portrayals of women in general and babysitters specifically that conveyed all of these anxieties men were feeling about women pushing their claims for independence. All of those women who during the war, while the men were away, had to hold down the fort and get jobs or just otherwise in some way uh, deal with men not being able to bring home the bacon. And then Foreman Brunel goes on to write about how American men, not in general, but specifically men creating the pop culture that we consumed cultivated this perception of teen sitters as militants and miscreants during the late 40s and 50s. And she says that this is all tied into fears about the decline of paternal authority with the aim of reasserting patriarchal power. Well, so where did all of this talk of militancy come from? Unions. These these girls formed unions, Kristen. Yeah, so in 1947,
4: as... Babysitting had become one of the fastest-growing service industries, by the way. Teen girls in New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Michigan essentially caught the labor activism bug and organized babysitter unions. Because as Foreman Brunel writes, they sought to reshape the babysitting industry, eliminate exploitation, and assert their rights – as workers because they also, too, they wanted standardized wages um, and she writes that
3: teenage girls in at least three states laid down the rules for parents. <laughs> That's right. And I love it and I don't want to come off as condescending, but some of these agreements that were worked out are kind of amazing. Sitters in New Jersey, for instance, demanded adequate heat, which is like serious. You should not freeze your sitter to death or your children. What's going on? Um, but they also demanded refreshments and free use of the phone, radio, and desks. That's what I'm talking about. Get those snacks. Get those snacks. Premium With, snacks. Whether you're in a backpack or not. Um, Massachusetts girls wrote into their contracts visits from friends and boyfriends. Uh-oh. But New Jersey girls agreed no friends or boyfriends would come over. Because mm. that was a huge fear that the bobby-soxing babysitter was just going to have parties. That's what the film Sitting Pretty was about, that like after the baby sitter got fresh with the father and he like spurns her advances. She just invites all of her crazy Bobby socks, her friends over to party. I like
4: though the the idea of her inviting all of her flapper friends over because it's just like older ladies in their their old flapper clothes. Um, But uh, I I like the approach that girls in Newton, Massachusetts took um, when they won a contract with the Auburndale Women's Club. So what they did, they created like a sliding scale. They demanded an hourly rate of 25 cents before midnight and 35 cents after midnight and then 50 cents per hour for overtime. In other words, if the parents said they were going to be home by 10, but they come home at 12, well, you got to pay up. That's a, that's going to be a dollar.
3: Well, and at the time, men and ma- magazines with male audiences were lamenting that these militant teens would not lift a finger outside of their basic childcare responsibilities and that they were like wresting money from powerless couples. There was a lot of anxiety over like who exactly is in charge here. Uh, the Saturday Evening Post, for instance, reported that sitters everywhere are united in their verdict against housework. Uh, a New Jersey union explicitly said, for instance, no housework unless by special arrangement. This was a huge concern among girls that you're just going to show up and suddenly you're going to be el- elbow deep in dishes. And that was not part of the agreement. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. Uh, and that certainly did not
4: sound fun to the Michigan Babysitters Union, which was called <laughs> one of the most militant ba- of the sitters unions. Um, and I wonder, though, if. This was not helped by the press, like the popular press Mm -hmm. at the time, because there was even a 1957 Life magazine cover story all about babysitting. And it hailed the $670 million babysitting industry.
3: So I'm sure that adults at the time saw that figure and were like, oh, whoa, we're being bamboozled. Yeah, there was an article not even too long ago in either Time or Newsweek that talked about the, you know, the whatever it was, like the $1 billion night out or something. And it's the same thing. It's like, it's not that these girls are making so much money at each pass. It's just that babysitters are in such high demand that they end up getting paid a lot and so you have a lot of a lot of grumpy people in the popular press being like uh you know it costs me a million dollars to go see a movie because you get the five dollar tickets and some popcorn but then you've got to pay the babysitter so much
4: rah 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 and because if we were back in 1957 it would be like we have to pay the babysitter 35 cents an hour. (laughs) Um, But meanwhile, you had mentioned how men's magazines were were none too pleased about this. But meanwhile, women's magazines stressed how sitters were working with mothers to develop the union's method of operations, rules, and work standards. And it pleasantly described these (laughs) babysitters unions as a cross between a woman's club and a sorority. So they seem to be somewhat supportive of this, of yeah. these enterprising young women. Well,
3: because the women people are in cahoots. Well, you yeah. Know, all those women folk. Well, why do you think we started this podcast? <laughs> right. Because we're in cahoots. Skidoo. Um, but unfortunately, the unions were short-lived. They ended up, as you might imagine, dying out amid larger cultural fears about communist subversion and labor union radicalism. So just like a larger environment of labor activism had given birth, to these young girls unions the fight against them also killed their unions too i bet none of our listeners predicted that
4: in our episode on babysitters we would somehow get around to communism
3: (laughs) six degrees of
2: separation gotta tell you about best fiends it's the game pretty much everybody's talking about morgan number two plays this sometimes before we start the show you know it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles but it's also a very casual game so it won't stress you out which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated, with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show— who are already playing this fun puzzle game, download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends.
0: This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. But if we dip our toes
4: back in pop culture, things things get uh, just stranger and stranger. Uh, In the 1960s, of course, with the sexual revolution... You have babysitters becoming the objects of masculine desire in so many magazines and movies. This is also when, too, you have the rise of babysitter urban legends like LSD taking sitters. Ooh, that sounds <laughs> like a nightmare, by the way, just like a baby's face swirling in front of you. Can you imagine like changing a baby's diaper on acid? I'm just saying that's that sounds horrifying. Um, and then you also have slasher films.
3: With lunatics coming in, killing the sitters. Yeah, and you also have, because more and more people at this point are moving to the suburbs, you've got all of this like stranger danger on the rise and fears about strangers in our suburban midst and, oh, well, it's okay. The dads can just take you home and drive you home. Oh no, but then we've got more fears about the teen girls seducing the Father. Or vice versa. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, in 1969, amid these changing sexual and moral standards, you get the film The Babysitter. Oh clever title, which features exaggerated fantasies about a teen girl. And Foreman Brunel talks about how it emerges from the, quote, new erotic possibilities for American men excited by the sexual freedom of teenage girls. And that just makes me want to lie down and cover my head with a pillow.
4: Yeah, that's uh that's a lot. And it really I mean, it just doesn't stop there. I mean, we see the cycle over and over again in the 60s, 70s and early 80s with Social concern fuels pop culture, which perpetuates our anxieties about now, like, feminism, girlhood and sexuality, which leads to more like slasher films (laughs) and stranger danger. And pretty much from the late 60s through the 80s, these are the portrayals of babysitters that we see. Either they are doing something to endanger your kids or their lives are being endangered because the call is coming from inside the house. (laughs) Um, Or they are an object of, like, the husband's sexual fantasies. So by the time we get to the 80s, there is no shortage of -of out-of-control sitters on TV, which is reflecting ambivalence, And anxiety about challenges that girls and women pose to traditional social order. Because, I mean, by this time, too, second wave feminism has come and mm-hmm. now come to a
3: close. Second wave feminism, but also divorce rates skyrocketing. Lots of, again, family-based anxiety. Um, nearly half of all moms with preschool kids had jobs at this point. Um, but it's funny though that like against this backdrop of like society's becoming more liberal, sexual mores are becoming more liberal. You've got even more, more than ever, babysitting training classes and manuals to ensure the safety and femininity. And heteronormativity of this of this industry, so to speak, basically uh, by 1997, you have more than 800 safe sitter teaching sites in all 50 states. And their motto was better sitters today, better parents tomorrow. So in that way, you're almost talking to mom, like encouraging her to encourage her daughter to become a babysitter. But, I mean, on the other hand, at the same time, you've still got anxieties about teen girls. Those never go away. Teen girls never stop being a source of, like, fear and anxiety for parents. I just think it's fascinating that we're, on the one hand, encouraging girls to pursue this, like, very heteronormative feminine pursuit if they want to make money. But, on the other hand, being like, oh, but don't be a slut. Well, I mean, and that's why it's notable that in
4: the 80s you do have the launch of the Babysitter's Club series because it's such a positive and aspirational representation of babysitting. And this is also a good point to note how completely white this entire podcast has been. I mean, it's been like nothing but white middle class. And that is something that Foreman Brunel addresses briefly in her book. I mean, she acknowledges like, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this is, is just focused on white girls. I mean, babysitting was very much like a white job. And even if you look at the Babysitter's Club, the original for, well, you have um, Claudia, I believe, who is Japanese-American, who. Um, but it's not until the later series that you finally get Jessie, who is the first and only African-American uh, babysitter in the club. And I think because of that, though, it was a huge deal and people were very appreciative of her being in there. But in terms of the whole overwhelming whiteness of babysitting, Forman Brunel writes, The iconic sitter's whiteness mirrored the reality of the historical labor force where, other than caring for kin for no pay, babysitting among Hispanic, African-American, and Asian girls was limited. And I think that that ties, too, as well to the, the whole class issue of it. You know, you need to have that disposable income to even be able to employ a babysitter.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that... The babysitter that arose in popular culture, the image was of a white girl, but she also was the recipient of all of the anxiety. You didn't have similar anxieties that I'm aware of about black or Hispanic babysitters, for instance. It was like they're at once lauding and celebrating the white virginal babysitter, but on the other hand having all this anxiety about what she could potentially mean for their families. Well,
4: I think you don't hear that about like babysitters of color because they probably weren't being hired by like all these white suburban families. Um, as Foreman Brunel also writes, she says uh, as a quintessence of female adolescence, Oh, that kind of rhymes. The babysitter acted out the struggle between normalizing American girlhood as white middle-class and suburban and pathologizing it. Mm-hmm. So it is like all of both of those things wrapped up together.
3: Yeah. And I love, though, that in the 90s, um, just like how uh, during the labor movement you have teen girls reflecting the larger social movements, in the 90s with, like, you've got you start you're starting to get riot girl feminism, third wave feminism. You start to see again a bunch of young babysitters um, starting to internalize notions about feminism and saying that they want to be paid the same wage for similarly valued jobs that boys do. They, there were a lot of girls at the time complaining that like, oh, well, you know, boys are going to get paid the same amount that i'm getting paid for a night of babysitting just for mowing the lawn for an hour. I can attest to that. I also mowed some lawns back in my day. You could make some good
4: cash. Man, i have never mowed a lawn. Oh, Caroline. It's uh, listen, if i'm like in the mood for it, it's very satisfying, kind of like loading the dishwasher. <laughs> anyway, back to babysitting. Um today though, there are still those gender issues and a gender wage gap, talking about, like, equal pay, while boys make up less than 3% of all babysitters, no surprise, they still make more than girls. Granted, it's only 50 cents an
3: hour more than girls, <laughs> but still, that's a little, it's astonishing to me. Yeah, the Priceonomics blog speculates that perhaps boys are confident in asking for more um or maybe because there are so few the ones who do end up babysitting might have some special childcare skill or qualification in some way um or maybe it does go back to that 1930s anxiety about girls being out of control and boys being more you know quietly masculine and in control i don't, I don't know um but somebody who's horrified by this is Katie Donovan who's an equal pay consultant and she was writing for Elevate Network she was horrified to learn that a lot of girls don't have steady rates, but they just accept whatever the parents are willing to pay. And she stresses the importance of showing girls that they should know their value, so that they can fight and rage against that pay gap later in life. But the thing
4: is, though, especially if, if we look at where we were in the depths of the recession, babysitting was booming. You can make <laughs> some pretty great money These days as a babysitter in 2013, the Boston Globe reported that their rates are soaring because in Boston, teen sitters got an average of ten dollars an hour, which they note is a wage that's risen nine times faster than inflation since the early 80s.
3: Yeah, it's also worth noting that that's Massachusetts minimum wage. It's ten dollars in New York. The going rate is seventeen fifty an hour, which is crazy, but I guess reflects the cost of living. Um, And it's interesting to look at articles about the babysitting economy. There's a lot of different things affecting it. You've got Craigslist, UrbanSitter.com and other sites that allow sitters to see the competition's going rates. So that's a way despite not having a babysitters union like 15-year-olds did in the in the 40s and 50s. God, bring back the babysitters unions. It's still yeah, that could be the next step in the babysitters club series. <laughs> yes. But it's it's still a way to almost standardize wages. Um but you've also got issues around the recession and the weak job market meaning that more college students and college grads are seeking the work of babysitting, because at least you know babysitting is never going anywhere. People are always going to need some degree of childcare. And so when you are, as that Boston Globe article noted, when you are more qualified, maybe you can speak another language, maybe you do have specific psychological or childcare skills because you have gone to college and you're not a 15-year-old girl, um, you can end up charging more. Well, and speaking of those 15-year-old girls, I think that they are just less likely to
4: seek out babysitting jobs because so many teens today are slammed with extracurriculars. You have SAT preparation. I mean, they're scheduled, you know, from from dawn till dusk so often. Um, And you have these dual earner families that leads to increased demand for sitters and also a willingness to pay higher rates. And I think also on top of that, our culture of helicopter parenting Mm -hmm. where – oh, you will pay top dollar to make sure that your babysitter can speak Mandarin and has a doctorate in child psychology.
3: Even though your baby can't speak Mandarin. Even though your baby is just a baby. Even though you don't have a child, she's just hanging out at your house
4: <laughs> for two hours. Yeah,
3: for, yeah, for you're predicting. And with the aging up of
4: the babysitter population, at least it seems like, um, because you're probably likelier to hire a college student than you might be the girl next door... I will be curious to see if that trend continues as time goes on or if we ever will see a resurgence of, you know, kind of the neighborhood babysitters. I mean, I think this also reflects... Just like the changing patterns of how
3: we're living these days, too. Yeah. We're moving out of suburbia. And then are we just gonna get more and heightened fears about the older babysitter that melds with our fears about nannies boinking Gavin Rossdale? You know? Like, are we ever gonna get away from having cultural fears around women and sexuality? And I mean, if if history is any guide, I I would submit that that we are not going to move away from that. And so We just threw a lot at you, but I'm really interested to hear from listeners about their babysitting experiences. I'm interested to hear from parents. Do you have maybe some subconscious fears about your babysitter? Or have you experienced parents' fears around teenage girls taking care of their kids? Also,
4: listeners, any weird babysitter stories that you have either as the babysitter or the child being babysat? Definitely want to hear those. And guys, have you... Babysat. I know a lot of you have. I mean, it's like so common for boys to babysit. It's ridiculous that we have strange hangups around that. But MomStuff at houseofworks.com is where you can send us all your letters. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. <laughs>
3: Okay, so I have a letter here from Elizabeth in response to our cuddling episode. Uh, she says, Ladies, I was so happy to hear you call out the asexual, aromantic community on your cuddling podcast. Just hearing you say my sexual orientation as a community to want information from was so gratifying, I got giddy. Anyway, you wanted information on ace cuddling. Let me tell you, myself and my straight boyfriend are champion cuddlers. We've been together almost six years, and since I have a lot of trauma around sex, we don't have sex. A lot of people might think that we therefore have no physical intimacy, but nothing could be farther from the truth. We use cuddling all the time as verification of our closeness and just to feel really good. It is comforting and fun and relaxing to do with a devoted partner. You asked about how this is not misleading to a partner, and we work that out with just communicating about it. Sure, sometimes he gets really turned on by a particular excellent bout of cuddles, but he's happy to just keep such things low-key and may slip off to take care of it later. He said multiple times how important the cuddling is to him in reaffirming our relationship and to helping him have nice brain chemicals, too. I think we use it a lot like sex, expressing our love and desire to be near each other with our bodies. To add another wrinkle, I have anxiety and things can get pretty bad sometimes if we're at home. I ask for cuddles to help calm my frantic brain, but that's not always where things get bad. If we're out in public, though, we don't need to launch into full-body cuddles in order for me to get relief from my brain. Foot cuddles or pinky cuddles have become sufficient to slow things down enough to deal with the situation. Hooray for the good cuddling brain chemicals. Thanks for the fantastic podcast, and thanks again for including the Ace and A-Row community in your discussion. Personally, I find being acknowledged as real as one of the most important things I could hear from you, and hopefully other media will pick up from your lead. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. And
4: Elizabeth, you might be interested to head over to the Stuff i Never Told You YouTube channel and watch the video, The ABCs of Asexuality. Alicia also wrote us about our cuddling episode, and she writes, The subject of cuddling is a particularly interesting one for me because of the way I was raised. I'm the oldest of three siblings, and my family of five practiced family bed until I was 12 years old. Not out of necessity, we all had our own rooms with our own beds, but because we enjoyed spending time and cuddling together. I have so many fond memories of Saturday morning spent cuddling, playing, and even eating all in the family bed. And the, to this day, we're still incredibly close, even now that all of us are adults and out of the house. And I credit much of that closeness to the time spent in the family bed. The downside of this wonderful experience, however, are the reactions I get when I tell people about it. I get reactions from mild confusion to disbelief or disgust. I often avoid telling the story because I rarely get a positive response, and especially when I reveal that the family bed was my dad's idea. People have an especially hard time coming to terms with the idea of a grown man wanting to cuddle and spend time with his children without it being creepy or sexual. And I always feel like I have to close out the story with the line, and we all grew up to be totally normal, well-adjusted adults. Looking forward to listening to more of your podcast. Well, thanks, Alicia. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, videos, blogs, and podcasts, including our sources so you can learn more about babysitting, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, I'm Amy Nelson.
2: And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy?
4: We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs,
3: but the stories of women, they remain incomplete.
2: We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: What if I told you that UFOs, haunted houses, and even inexplicable magic tricks are all caused by the same creature? And what if I told you these powerful and ancient beings are meant to be feared? The Hidden Djinn, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Mankey's Grim and Mild explores the legends of these ancient and terrifying creatures. Join me, Rabia Chaudhary, as we step into the world of The Hidden jinn. Listen to The Hidden jinn on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.